You're listening to the Siksika Health Fair Podcast, a CGSW original available on the website cgsw.com under the podcast tab. This podcast was created by CGSW, located on the traditional territories of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Pigani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda First Nation, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. The 2022 Siksika Health Fair took place on June 7th at the Gordon Yellowfly Memorial Arbor with booths set up to promote health and wellness to the people and community of the Siksika Nation. With food trucks and tables selling Bia jewelry, three keynote speakers were also invited to present and share their stories and research in the topics that they specialize in. In this CGSW series, we'll showcase the speakers and learn more about them and what they discussed in their speeches. You're listening to the Siksika Health Fair Podcast. In our third and last episode, we'll learn about Winique Horn-Miller and how her mother played a strong influence on her life, as well as how Winique learned to navigate through her greatest adversities. I'm really excited that today is about mental health. So I'm going to tell you a story about how I became an Olympian. So I'm raised by a single mother. My mom, Continetta Horn, she raised me and my four sisters. My father, who's from Six Nations, went to residential school, like many, many of your family members. And he wasn't part of my life, he wasn't able to be part of my life, but I was very lucky to have a very strong mother who raised me and my sisters. And she's also a Mohawk language speaker. And every time I go out to speak, she always says, Winique, you need to share our language. Because if you want to understand how our people think and feel and are motivated, it's in our language. And she would tell me and my sisters, when you're making decisions in life, you need to make decisions based on love. First, you make decisions based on love of your body. You got to make decisions protecting your body, protecting your mind, protecting your spirit. You build on that love to make decisions for your family, your clan, and your community. And when I was a little kid, my mom used to always tell me that. And I always thought she was just trying to get me to eat my vegetables and go to bed and follow her rules. But as I got older, I came to understand what she was talking about. You know, when I became a teenager, I was a real punk, not in so much my actions, but in how I dressed. And I used to always love to go and date the baddest boy that I could find. And we all know the guys that are the baddest boys are always the ones to break your heart. And so they would break my heart, and I would sit on my mother's lap, and I would cry. And my mother would say to me, she'd rub my back and she'd be like, sweetheart, are you showing love for yourself by letting him treat you that way? And I soon come to realize that I had a choice, that I could decide how people were going to treat me and that love shouldn't hurt. Two really fundamental things that I would carry through my life. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, Wanique Horn-Miller was born and raised in the Gognawage territory in Quebec. By the time Horn-Miller turned seven years old, she was already swimming competitively 
participating in meets from 1982 to 1997. In high school, she began playing water polo, blossoming into an exceptional player. She also played an important role on the women's water polo squad while attending Carleton University to study political science, graduating in 2000. In 1994-95 and 1995-96, the team won the Ontario University Athletics Championship and Horn Miller made history at Carleton by becoming the first woman to win the Female Athlete of the Year award three years in a row. Horn Miller helped lead the National Women's Water Polo Team to win a gold medal in the 1999 Pan American Games in Winnipeg. She also served as co-captain of the 5th place women's water polo team in the 2000 Olympic Summer Games in Sydney, Australia. Now, it took me about 16 years to get to the Olympics. I didn't know I was going to go to the Olympics. I trained for six hours a day. And I trained with one idea in mind that I wanted to become an Olympian. But that dream did not start with me. It started many years before I was even born. And I was just talking to the elder up here. He was wondering how to say my name. And I told him, I said, you probably know my mother. My mother, her name is Continetta Horn, and she was one of Canada's first native rights activists. And she told me when I was coming out here, I used to come out to Blackfoot territory, full of powerful people. But my mom, she was born in 1940, and many of the elders here remember what it was like back in those days. As an Indigenous person, we couldn't do many things, like leave our communities like vote, get a university degree, serve in the military. These are all things, if we did this, then our, our status would get taken away. And so my mother got involved with the civil rights movement. My mother was a very crazy, unorthodox Native woman of her time. Many men, both Native and non-Native, didn't know what to do with her. She was odd, different, fashionable, and as soon as she opened her mouth, she spoke her language and she knew about our rights as people. Horn Miller's mother, Continetta Horn, was not only a strong influence in her daughter's life, but also in the lives of many Indigenous peoples. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, Continetta Horn was an actress, model, political activist, and a civil servant. She established and oversaw the Indian Legal Defense Committee from 1967 to 1971 as a mechanism of preserving treaty rights and safeguarding traditional ways of life. She also participated in various protests. The Canadian Encyclopedia says that in one protest, Continetta Horn placed rats in a government meeting to highlight unlawful dumping on her reserve. As well, Continetta Horn served a variety of posts as a civil servant at the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs Canada, now known as Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada, including the Educational, Community, and Social Development Policy Divisions. Furthermore, Continetta Horn demonstrated unwavering support to Indigenous groups in their legal battles over land claims and titles. When Jones William Ignace, a 64-year-old Sushwap elder, was imprisoned in 1995 for defending unceded property, she oversaw the Free Wolverine campaign to secure his release. Lastly, Continetta Horn also engaged in activism as it pertains to advancing feminism for Indigenous women. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, Horn championed anti-colonial feminist discourse 
which emphasized the historical significance of women in society. In 1991, Horn discussed the status of women in Mohawk mythology, asserting that they, women, bring forth life and are the anchor of the society. She also asserted during a land claims dispute in 2006 that Mohawk women have a particularly close and historical connection to the preservation and defense of their lands. The Canadian Encyclopedia further mentions that Constantine Horn said a woman can raise a family and change the world on her own, something she told the Montreal Gazette in 1971. Her own experience serves as proof of this. In addition, she challenged patriarchal laws and customs that required women who married men from other reservations to leave their own to move to their new partners. Horn gave these explanations as to why she decided to raise her daughters while being unmarried. Although these are a few of the feats that Continental Horn has engaged in, she has clearly devoted her life to bringing indigenous issues to the forefront while promoting her Gognawage history. So when she started having kids, she made two really important decisions for me and my sisters. One, no drugs and alcohol were allowed in our home. This is the 60s. She wouldn't even allow cigarettes, or the 70s, she wouldn't allow cigarettes into our house. Like, and back then, everybody chain smoked. If you remember the 70s, you remember everybody smoked. My mom wouldn't allow any of that in her home. And many years later, I asked her, I said, why were you so adamant that there was none of that in our house? She said, I wanted you to dream as big as possible. And I knew that at night, if you were going to put your head down on a pillow, if there was any chance something could happen, you wouldn't dream, you would be fearful. She said, I needed to give you an environment where you could have the freedom to dream as big as possible. Now that I'm a mother, I know the value of giving that safe home and that sense of safety to our children so they can have the freedom to dream. My mother also made another decision as she put me and my sisters into sports. And she chose sports that were not judged. She chose, she chose swimming and running because she didn't want our nativeness to get in the way. She didn't want the fact that we were native kids. So anybody judging us or choosing us for a team, that could be something that would happen. She wanted us to race against the clock and that's it. But most importantly, she wanted us to learn some important things. If you ask my mother, what were you trying to do with your kids? She said, I was trying to create the next generation of disease-free, high-achieving warriors. And she had four girls. But she said, my mother has never said, Winique, you need to become an Olympian or anything like that. She would say, all I want you to do is I want you to do whatever you dream to do with excellence. You come from a people that did not get a chance to do things half-assed. We come from a people that had to live a life of excellence or you didn't survive. So my mom wanted us to learn how to persevere, how to have respect, and how to strive to the very best of what we could achieve. But she also was very adamant about showing us what was possible. 1984, I got a chance to watch a fellow Mohawk Olympian become Olympic champion. His name was Alwyn Morris, and I'm sure he's been to Siksika and all over the Blackfoot territory. But when I watched him race to gold, I literally saw the, 
that glass ceiling that everybody put over my head as a young Native person, it was shattered. He was the best in the world and he was from where I was from. I'm the second Olympian from my community, which is pretty awesome. And many years later, I got a chance to do a speaking tour with him. And he said one of the most amazing, amazing things to me. He said, you know what, Winique? First of all, I didn't train to come third. I trained every single day like I was gonna win that gold medal. And he said, second, sometimes when we have a dream, we will put 98% of ourselves on the table. 98% of what we have, and we hold back that 2%. And he says, do you know why we do that? I said, no. He said, in case we fall, in case we fail, that 2% is so that we can pick ourselves up again and keep going. And he said, but do you know what one of the best things about being a Native American is? And I go, what? He said, I knew that I could put that last 2% on, and even if I fell, my people would pick me up, dust me off, and push me forward. So what did I have to be afraid of? And he said, you know what? You can always fail, but you will always fail if you never choose to try. If you never choose to give everything you have, it is always going to be in your mind of a failure. If you try and you fall, you still succeed because you know that you gave everything you had. And he says, put that 2% on the table, Winique, and keep going. No matter what, your people will pick you up. You know, I had, that stuck with me for a long time. And when I was 14 years old, I understood what it was to fall, what it was to fail, what it was to be scared. I was 14 years old when the Oka crisis broke out in my communities of Gatnawage and Ganasdage. And that summer, I saw some of the greatest things that would inspire me. I saw indigenous women rising and being leaders. Leaders during the whole crisis. Standing, and our men listening and supporting them as leaders. That was very, very important to me to see that. I also saw our people across the country waking up and saying, we're not gonna, we're not gonna accept this anymore. There were peace camps all over Canada supporting us in ceremony, they were coming to Ganasadage to support us. It was one of the most important things for us. And I remember, you know, you gotta remember this is before social media. So nobody had heard about our rights, our treaties, section 35 of the constitution. And then suddenly every single night, on every newscast, they were headlining. The Oka crisis was headlining across the world. And once that cat was out of the bag, it couldn't go back anymore. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, the Oka crisis was a 78-day standoff between Mohawk activists and the Canadian government as well as the Quebec provincial government. A proposed golf course expansion, as well as the development of townhouses on contested and sacred Mohawk grounds, ignited the dispute. Due to historical implications with land titles and claims, the Mohawk had consecutively been denied their right to their ancestral land, to which that golf course would be built upon. Seeing as the expansion was allowed to continue, 
the members of the Mohawk community set up barricades to prevent construction in protest of the move. Tensions escalated from there, especially after a Quebec provincial police officer, Corporal Marcel Lemay, was shot and killed. The protest eventually came to an end as the Canadian Army arrived. The federal government bought the land after the golf course development was abandoned. However, it did not designate the area as a reserve, and there hasn't been a formal handover of the property to the Mohawks since. I also saw some things that would always terrify me. I saw race riots every night against our people. I saw our elders' cars being stoned as they tried to leave the community and the police stand by and do nothing. And I was just 14 years old, probably the same age as a lot of the young people that are here today. I didn't quite understand what was going on. But at the very end, on September 26, 1990, we decided to leave and end the crisis. We negotiated with the army to let us out the front gates and we'd be put on buses and taken to a military prison and processed. I was put in the front with my little sister and all the children that were there right to the end. I was given all their ID and everything said, just, we don't want you to get mixed up and mistaken. If there's any violence that they can see you that they, to keep you safe. But as we started to walk, and we were singing a song, a traditional song. We noticed that the press barricade had been pushed back 400 meters so that people couldn't, they couldn't see what would happen to us. And it was about 5.30 in the evening and the sun was setting. So we got scared. So we marched down to the front gates um, and we took a right turn at the barbed wire. And there was three levels of barbed wire standing tall. And we got to a, a corner where there's only two levels of barbed wire. And as we got there, someone pulled out a spinal board and put that spinal board on top of the barbed wire. And everybody started to pour out onto the highway. And then the army started to get certain people and just chaos broke out, all kinds of chaos. And I remember people scooping up the kids and running and trying to get them to safety. And I was holding on to my little sister who was four at the time. And we walked, we were walking towards that opening and there was a young non-Indigenous man, a soldier, probably 18 or 19 years old, and he was standing there looking around, watching this chaos. And he had a really big gun, huge gun. And my little sister looked up at him and she started to make the sound I'll, I'll never forget. I'm a mother, so I know the sound that children make in many different contexts. I know the cry for hungry, and the cry for tired, and the cry for frustrated. But there's a very special cry a child makes when they think they're going to die. And she looked up at him and she started to make that sound. And I looked at her and I said, he's not going to hurt us. And I put my hand on his chest and I pushed him backwards. And he took a step back and he let me walk right out in front of him. And when I got out onto the highway, I kept fighting my way, trying to fight my way to the press barricade. But when I got to the press barricade, I recognized a soldier there. I had, two weeks earlier, had fought with them over my grade 10 school books. Not that I really wanted them, but you know, in principle, I wanted my school books. And so I remember when I saw him, I pulled my little sister behind my back and I said, I know you, and I pointed at him. And right at that moment, I got hit in the chest. And I fell forward like I got the wind knocked at him. You know that feeling when you get punched 
in the diaphragm, you get the wind knocked out of you. And I fell forward. And then someone kicked my feet out from underneath me. And right at that moment, a photo was taken. And you know, I don't remember this in a continuous memory and I never understood why. I remember it like snapshots, picture snapshots. And many years later when I got to get therapy, PTSD therapy for this, the doctor said, you know, sometimes when you're in such acute duress, your mind will either break or it will start to shut down. And she said, your mind shut down to protect itself. But I do remember how I felt. I felt like so much pain and sadness and fear and rage and confusion. I felt like my whole body was going to explode. And right after this picture was taken, they dragged me back by the back of my jacket all along the ground, right to where they were, all the other warriors were surrounded. And I gave my little sister to my mother and I looked down at my chest and I was covered in blood. I didn't know that the order had been given to put bayonets, which are very long knives, on the ends of their guns. And when I got to see a doctor 22 hours later, I was told that had this, the tip of that knife gone in one centimeter either way, it would have gone into my heart. It went into my chest and went sideways. And I have a really big scar on my chest. And I suffered after this very, very bad PTSD, really acute, like panic attacks, sleeplessness, nightmares. And I locked myself in my room for six days. And I didn't leave, I was too afraid. And on the sixth day, my mother came in my room and she sat down on my bed and she said, she took my hand and she says, what are you gonna do? I said, I don't know, I wanna, I wanna stay here, I, I wanna quit, I'm done. I wanna stay here, I never want, I never wanna leave. And she said, you know what, Wanique? Everybody would understand. She says, but you had this dream of going to the Olympics. And if you quit now, you are handing your dream over to that soldier and you will be his victim for the rest of your life. But we will support anything that you decide. And then she got up and she started walking out of my room and she had her hand on the doorknob and she paused. And then she turned around and she looked at me and she said, but you remember I did not raise you to be anybody's victim. And then she left. Now, it's probably not the best way to deal with someone with acute PTSD, but that's what I needed to hear. So I left my room. I went back to practice. I went to the one place that gave me, I could put my stress into it. And 10 years to the day, I was competing at the Olympics. I was competing in a system that didn't care who I was, didn't care what I'd been through. All they wanted was me to perform. No native people anywhere in my world. So many times I wanted to quit. I was done with sports system, done with my team, done with my coaches. And I would come home and I wanted to quit. I was about to say, mom, I'm done, I'm quitting. And then I would look at my little sister and I remember the promise I made her. You're gonna be successful. You're gonna be everything you want. I promise, I'll make sure. But I knew the only way she was gonna know how to do that is if I showed her how. And if I quit, I was showing her how to quit. So I would look at her and say, Ganyadio, I'll go back one more day for you. We all have times when we don't love ourselves enough to keep going, but there's always someone in our life that we love more. And my little sister was that person that I loved to the end of the earth and back. 
I wanted her to be successful. And so I went back. And sometimes that promise we made every day for months. And I think I made that promise even right before I left for the Olympics. And when I walked into that Olympic Games, I wanted that soldier to see me. And I wanted him to know that he did not beat me. He could not beat me. They could not beat us. They, couldn't, they can't beat any of us because we will keep rising because we're inspired by our children. We are inspired by our ancestors. And we know that our ancestors have been through worse and they never, ever gave up. At the outset of this podcast episode, we looked into the athletic feats that Wanique Horn-Miller achieved in her early life. But Wanique Horn-Miller is not defined only by means of her athletic career. She is defined by her ambition, courage, resilience, and is an inspiration to many Indigenous communities. It took courage and resilience for Wanique to be greater than her adversity, that she would not fall victim at the hands of a Canadian soldier. It took ambition for Wanique to take her feats to the next level. The Canadian Encyclopedia says that in 2008, Wanique became a CBC commentator at the Beijing Olympic Summer Games in the same year she retired from professional sports. In 2010, while she was hosting the coverage of the Vancouver Olympic Winter Games, she observed that there were only a few Indigenous athletes. For this reason, she was determined to accept the position of Indigenous Action Ambassador at the Assembly of First Nations, where she worked to create a national Indigenous sport, fitness and wellness strategy. According to the Olympic Canada website, the strategy's objective is to encourage Aboriginal youth to pursue higher education by fostering self-esteem and highlighting a harmony between academics and athletics. The Canadian Encyclopedia says that Horn Miller spoke to students from more than 1,000 schools across North America as part of We Day 2014. She did so to advocate for constructive social change in Canadian Indigenous communities. These are a mere few examples of Wanique's feats outside of the water. Wanique has become one of North America's most inspiring and prolific female Indigenous speakers. According to her website, currently Wanique is the director of the Storyboot Project as part of the Indigenous fashion company Manitoba Mukluks. This project helps pass down beading, mukluk, and moccasin-making skills from one generation to the next, while also promoting traditional Indigenous artists. It's clear to see that Wanique Horn Miller will surely continue to be an inspiration for many Indigenous communities for generations to come. And so, the question I think I had to ask myself was, what kind of warrior was I? We all ask ourselves that question. But the one thing you know, and you have to remember, each and every one of you, you are the descendants of the best of the best of our people. Our ancestors went through times of war, famine, disease. If they weren't the smartest, the toughest, the most resourceful, they didn't survive. If they were lazy, if they did things half-assed, they didn't eat, their families starved. We are descendants of those people. And you know what? The best way that we can honor their sacrifice is being the healthiest, the happiest, the strongest, most successful versions of ourselves because they didn't have a chance to do that. They were too busy surviving. But also, one of the things I want to leave you with is, one day, seven generations in the future, 
your great-great-great-grandchildren will be learning about right now. They're going to learn about today and what has happened in the Blackfoot Nation and the Mohawk Nation. And they're going to ask their parents to say, well, what did great-great-grandma and great-great-grandpa do? You're writing your legacy today. You're writing your story. Make that story as awesome, as full of power and humor and happiness and adventure. Achieve the greatest of your greatest potential because you are going to be that person that one day that that parent is going to tell that child when they don't think they can do it, they're going to say, do you know what blood runs in your veins? They're going to tell the story of your story. So I want to thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you to the Blackfoot Nation. We don't have a word for goodbye. I don't know if the Blackfoot have a good word for bye, but we say onagiwahi, we say until next time. Thank you. This has been the Siksika Health Fair podcast. This episode featured the third and last of the keynote speakers at the 2022 Siksika Health Fair. Winnie Corn-Miller, who shared her life stories to illustrate that yes, any Indigenous person is capable of achieving success. A special thank you to the Siksika Nation for inviting us to record the event, the Canadian Encyclopedia for the information on the history of Winnie Corn-Miller, Horn, and the Oka Crisis, Winnie's personal website for information about her accomplishments, and the Olympic Canada website for providing information about the activism work that Winique has engaged in. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a CJSW original. For more episodes of this show and more original content, check under the podcast tab on cgsw.com.